Hello everyone, my name is Evie O'Brien and I am the Interim Executive Director at Atlantic Institute. It's my huge pleasure and honour to welcome you to this seminar, webinar. I'd like to particularly acknowledge our guests on the panel. So first of all, Debel Panelis, who has come all the way from the University of Havana in Cuba. Saida Ali, who has come to us all the way from Kenya. Our distinguished guest and lifelong friend of the Atlantic Fellows Programs, Bev Skeggs from the LSE, and to Sarah, who's come to us from the Cuba platform. This seminar has been jointly hosted by the Cuba platform and the Atlantic Institute. It doesn't go unnoticed that at the moment in Davos, there is the World Economic Forum. Mm. And the conversation yesterday was about the contribution in particular of women and girls yeah. to the global economy which amounts to $10.4 trillion annually across the world. So really, really looking forward to the conversation, to the debate, and a warm welcome to everyone. Thank you so much, Evie. Thank you for welcoming us and to welcoming this important conversation on care. It's very powerful to be here with everyone today. I want to echo Evie in giving huge thanks to the panelists I know that all of you are taking time away from your other professional and very important family and care obligations, and that means a lot to all of us. Thank you to our intimate audience here at Rhodes House. It's great to have you, and a big hello to everyone out there on the live stream. My name is Justine Williams, and I work together with Sarah at the Platform for Innovation and Dialogue with Cuba. We collaborate with the Atlantic Fellows Programs, with global thought leaders, and with Cuban counterparts to create space for conversations across issue areas, across borders and silos on equity and empathy. And we do this because we believe that there's a lot that we can learn in the global community from Cuba's experiences, their successes and their challenges, creating, among other things, infrastructure that supports care. The conversation that you'll see today isn't just starting right now. It actually began a bit over a year ago. We were together in Havana, Cuba, as Daibel and Saida and Bev were presenting their work and their various perspectives on gender and equity and the economies of care. I think we all saw the potential for a really rich, ongoing engagement. And so the conversation that we're having today isn't meant to be a comprehensive, theoretical overview of the economies of care all across the globe. It's not going to cover everything that's going on in Cuba or in any of the countries represented today. But it is all about continuing a dialogue and learning from each other's different perspectives. So I won't go on any longer. I just want to say a couple of things about logistics. We would love to have your questions, both from the live audience and from those of you who are on the live stream. Please email those in so we can address them. One more quick round of introductions to let you know where everyone is coming from. So Daibel Panellas is a social psychologist. She works at the University of Havana and has collaborated with many research institutions and NGOs in Cuba. And her research focus is on group and social identities. Saida Ali is a senior Atlantic fellow for social and economic equity. She's worked as an activist since a young age and today is a consultant working on women's rights issues. Her research interest is on the global economics of care and migration and the ways that gender, race, and class intersect to reproduce and justify inequalities. Beverly Skeggs is a distinguished professor of sociology at the University of Lancaster an advisor to the Atlantic Fellows for Social and Economic Equity. She's been working on feminist economies for a long time and is now convener of the research theme on caring economies. 
Then Sarah Stevens, our director and founder of the Cuba platform, will be moderating today. Sarah has dedicated her career to changing U.S. policy toward Latin America and has spent much of the past couple of decades bringing people, politicians, activists, scholars, and artists to Cuba to engage with counterparts there. So thank you all again, and I'll pass things over to you now, Sarah. Thank you, Justine. Thank you, Evie. And thanks to everyone who's joining us, either in person or virtually, to talk about care. This is an issue that connects us all, everybody. It doesn't matter your race, your gender, your political persuasion. Everybody is cared for and provides care in their lives. And I think that that's part of what makes it such an incredibly important issue. It's really universal. We've been here at Oxford a couple days and we've learned that C.S. Lewis haunted many joints around here, so I'm gonna quote him. He said, what you see depends a great deal on where you stand. I'd like to begin having the panel reflect on what they see from where they stand, both at a personal level, at a professional level, and at a national level. And we're going to begin with you. Thank you very much. What I see and where I stand and all of my coming into the focus on care work has been greatly personal. And as we say, it's also political. But the personal for me is in 2013, I took on a job in one of the global cities, New York, doing international policy work. I relocated with my five-year-old daughter and I'm a single mother. But before the end of 2015, I had resigned and I packed up my bags again and went back to Nairobi. A lot of people did not understand because they saw it as an opportunity for me to grow in my work of international policy but they didn't understand. Even the institution I was working with grappled with these issues. And for me, it was very specific to childcare is very expensive in some of these global cities. But there's also a lack of community support that I feel that I have in Kenya that also speaks to how accessible and easy it is for some of us to pay for care and to establish relationships and maintain those relationships with our communities. But at the same time, I was conflicted because I chose to go and work in a very feminist organization. But in that very organization, the conversation around care, the reflections around care, the need to have an alignment between what we were saying as people who are pushing for recognition of reproductive labor of women, is that there was no space in the organization for that conversation to happen. Mm -hmm. And so what I did is that I went back to Kenya. And this is the context that I bring as well, is it's not just about me, but the fact that we have a lot of women in Kenya spending, and this is a global statistics, three to six hours of unpaid work. And because of that, it means that it reduces the number of hours or the entry of women into labor participation. Then in Kenya, we have 40% of rural and 11% of urban households where women and girls spend from about half an hour or longer in search of water. So I'm talking about like the informal settlements that are within cities that water is not necessarily immediately available at your doorstep or inside the household. 
So then women have to go and fetch water. We're also talking about one in eight Kenyans of the age between 15 to 64 saying that they are economically inactive because they have to spend time taking care of their families. And in terms of economic value, because part of what my conflict of packing up my bags and going back to Kenya is the conflict that we often have, even in institutions that support women's rights work, is that people tend to separate the social from the economic, the productive from the reproductive. And so you have 42% globally of countries that actually take time to produce statistics on unpaid work. And so Kenya is not one of them. Although right now I know that there's talk that Kenya is going to start doing the timing surveys. And then 20% of GDP, this is the minimum value of GDP contribution of unpaid work across countries that actually have attempted to do those surveys. And it can go as high as 60%. We're talking about situations where you have more women providing care work either in institutions or in the private, and that it does affect or there is a link to how they enter into labor participation. But in my case, it's also being able to take time away because having gone back home, I was like, I'm just going to work as a consultant. That way I have the flexibility and control of my work hours, not knowing that when you go back to being interviewed for a full-time job, people go, you have a gap in your CV. I'm like, yes, I do have a gap. And it's not really a gap. I was doing consulting work, but employers don't want to listen to the fact that during that time, you are not just sitting around. You actually did part-time work and it counts. But these are some of the complexities and contradictions we are grappling with in a context such as Mm -hmm. Kenya and for people or women like me who work national and also global level. Mm -hmm. Thank you. How about you? I began my interest in an academic form. So many years ago, did an ethnography of how working class women's subjectivities are formed over time through care, because caring for others is one way in which women gain value and gain a sense of satisfaction. Care can be deeply satisfying in both giving it and in receiving it. So then followed through with lots of very dense academic debates about the value of domestic labour and all that stuff. So kind of was always interested in it and how It was never factored into economic understanding or economic policy. And for me, that was just outrageous and still is. How is it that it's just not counted? I am still very involved in those sorts of debates, although I did spend many years going down very, very lonely tunnels, it felt like, having these debates with myself most of the time. And then my mum got really, really ill and in need of care that I couldn't provide by myself. If somebody needs to go to the toilet in the middle of the night, I would be trying to lift her into the toilet, but I dropped her once. She was in hospital as a result. So thinking I cannot look after my mum by myself, I cannot do a full-time job and look after my mum by myself. My mum was disabled. She was nearly completely blind. She couldn't walk very well and she couldn't feed herself. 
So she fulfilled all the criteria in this country for receiving lots and lots of support. There was none available. We lived in an area where you could not get any sort of care support. That was in 2016 to 17. Now there's been surveys that show there are seven major care deserts in Britain where there literally isn't any care whatsoever. I was at the other end of the care chain in a way, not the migrant care chain, but a life chain. It's how do I look after my mom who needs more than one person? You cannot carry one person by yourself when there is nobody there. So I just literally could not get anybody to come out in the night. I then realised that she could go into a care home but the nurses advised against that and saying they're only fit for enemies and dogs. So the national care homes that are provided by the national state have been cut so much and are so understaffed that the provision that should have been provided for her had completely, completely disappeared and they advised me not to do it. Now, I am a university professor. I have a salary that can afford to pay for care because I can also get into debt. And lots of people are now funding care through debt. So I could remortgage my flat to pay for my mother's care. I needed to remortgage my flat because to pay for my mother's care was costing more than it would have cost to send a child to Eton. If I could have got a child into Eton, of course, that's a different matter. But I had to barter with a local care home. £950 they charged a week. Nobody earns that sort of money in Britain. <laughs> We're the seventh richest country in the world. So in order to look after my incredibly vulnerable mother, incredibly vulnerable, but very, very smart, I had to put her into a £950 a week care home, thinking at least if I paid that, she would get really good care. Oh no, of course not. They did give her the food she liked but they didn't help her to eat it. If you're completely arthritic and your hands are like that, you can't feed yourself. They put her into bed at night, so I thought she'd be safe, but they left her there. Any lady over the age of 50 usually has to pee at least once a night. When you get to the age of 80, it may be more than that, and they didn't give her a bell and they couldn't get her out of bed. Now, my mother's whole life was invested in being respectable, and she died in conditions of complete lack of dignity, lack of care, where I'd actually thought I'd provided it. I tried to rescue her after four days, get her out of there, but it was too late. She died a week later. So my whole career had been devoted to care, to understanding care, and to understand the economics of care. But when it actually came to it, just looking after the people who've cared for me and have loved me and supported me, became an impossibility no matter how rich I was, no matter how much debt I could get access to. And she just died in conditions of inhumanity, I'd say. Oh, we have a lot of grim pictures. How about Cuba? I would like to connect with this issue, believing that we should take up our roles from a very different perspective. And I think that usually when we are wherever, we take our roles in the very limited condition of which is the content of our role. And we don't connect with our personal experience and we don't put passion into what we do. For me, this panel has been the opportunity to exchange from those different perspectives 
I am not an expert on care or caregiving, but my view to the care system in general and connected to Cuba, it's how we can create societies that promote interdependence, promote connectiveness and care in different levels. What does it mean? So it's about care for each other. It's about care for the institutions that are supporting the countries we are living in. It's about care for ourselves. And it's providing care and taking care of us in very different levels, which is not limited for me just to child adulthood care. It's about everything, how we need each other and in which levels we can be able to be independent but also interdependent and dependent because dependency doesn't have to be exactly something that we have to carry with pain or whatever. So how to to maintain that balance? And that has been my approach from the social psychology point of view. And there are a lot of personal experiences that we can share. My connection in a very particular space with caring has been since I am a mom. It's not just about childcare, but it's also about how I feel a lot of times that I have to choose between being a mom, a good mom, and being a professional. And that is also something that I connect with the issue of care and its coherence, because there are a lot of institutions that has a very beautiful slogan and very robust slogans and missions and all that identity, logos, everything, about what the things should be. But actually, real experiences Mm -hmm. and daily life Mm -hmm. are not providing their members what they are saying that they should do. My experience was some years ago, I think four or five years ago, I had a scholarship from a prestigious university in New York. It was a great professional opportunity for me to be three months there. And at that time, I had three years. And I said that I wanted to go with my child. I was approved to go, even though it was a difficult process. And when I have to apply for the visa, and that implies permission from US and permission from my university, in both institutions, I was questioned because I wanted to go with my child. And at the same time, because nothing is black and white, I had lots of support. And in New York, I have everything settled from friends and colleagues to have childcare. But in my institution, someone in decision maker, a leader, a woman, she said, you know, if I were the consul of the embassy of US, I don't give it your visa. And when I went to the US embassy, they were asking why I wanted to go with my child and what I wanted to do there. And when I explained, I had a very settled schedule they say, you know, I think that you wanted to stay in U.S. And I could take that opportunity. It's all the time about which are the choices that we really have as women, as mothers, as professionals, as lovers in all of our roles. And of course, I feel a very strong commitment also in my role of professor at the university because it's also about how I can provide education for my students, among my colleagues, about how we can promote interdependency mm-hmm. in a context in Cuba that it's more and more global also. And it's how we put 
meaning into things that are really valuable as human beings and how we put meaning into money or market mm -hmm. or having or whatever. Thank you, all of you. So many pieces to pick up on. I especially love Dibel's concepts of interdependence. Yeah. I think we can circle back and talk about that more. And then this idea of coherence, mm -hmm. that it's not just at the policy level or just at the personal level, it's at every level and sort of practicing what you preach. This is a global crisis. We all agree on that. It's not, I don't think, recognized by enough people as a global crisis. We understand now that climate change is a global crisis, which by the way is connected to this, <laughs> but I don't feel like it's become popularized as a genuine crisis in the world. And I thought that this next part of our conversation, which will be more of a conversation, maybe we could start with you, Bev. Could you give us like a minute on what is the global crisis? The Oxfam Time to Care report came out yesterday right. to coincide with Davos and World Economic Forum. Oxfam produced this report that shows the scale, the sheer scale of how unpaid domestic or caring work is underpinning every single global economy obviously not counted, but literally is a fundamental part of how an economy runs. If we think of care generally or social reproduction, and that term says it all really, it is about reproducing the social, reproducing the economic, it is about making society exist and economic relations exist. It is the lubricant that allows brutal profit to be made. It's the lubricant <laughs> that allows this massive increase in wealth across the world into the super rich. What their report shows, and this has been going on for some time, but it's just got so much worse, it's about sucking up all that labor into the wealth of ultimately the extreme figures are 22 men own the wealth that's produced by you know all African women in that report so the global crisis is about the absorption of all that free labor that is very complex because it's often given as a gift it's often given because it's pleasurable it's often given because we love people how all of that enables an economy to be fueled that actually only benefits a minute number of people. And I think when I read the Oxfam report, it made me think about how much many years ago as feminists, we used to say women hold up half the world. Well, it feels now we're not just holding up half the world, but we're holding up these incredibly rich men on this precipice. And you know, something has to happen. This for me is the crisis that nobody ever pays any attention to the significance of all this unpaid labor and things like collecting water. Yeah. Absolutely significant. Things like providing education, mm -hmm. absolutely crucial. The socialization all the time, what we see is a fundamental use, abuse and sucking out of women's labor. And it is usually women. It really is usually women when you look at all the statistics. So global crisis, Oxfam have in their absolutely brilliant visualized fashion, given us some great graphics on this. And I do recommend that people look at that report. It's called Time to Care and it just visualizes is this global problem really, really significant. Bev thing. and Saida, I would be really interested in you talking a little bit about your experience or your takeaways from your trip to Cuba, because there's a place where the economic yeah. system is different. Mm -hmm. So did it enlighten you on this issue? Yeah, definitely. You know, for me, I was 
really fascinated by the fact that there are what I like to call the infrastructure of care is actually in place or someone has taken the time to think about it, to think about the, the mechanisms, to think about the institutions, to think about the human resource and the capacity of the human resource. And this I mean from the health professionals and the intersection or the link with the family level that one of my key takeaways was the fact that the people, the communities and the groups that we met with and had conversations with were saying to us that, yeah, you have a system where you can take, for example, the elderly into a place where they spend the day. And when they go back home, the people back home have been trained on how to handle situations, how to be there for their family member who needs that extra care. And some of what Bev was describing by giving the example of your mother, Bev, is that we sometimes think that because the institution is there and because someone has been paid, then everything is catered for, right? But there is the human, and going back to what you're saying, Daybell, is that the human connection, the need to value the relationships as human, human to human, that happen because of things that we don't talk about. We don't talk about the vulnerability of the human life cycle. Mm. We don't imagine that as we grow at some point, that there will be need for more care because someone's life is actually fragile. Their value in life does not stop just because they got to a certain age. But the way it is today and with how everything has been privatized, if I think about my country, coming back from Cuba, I went to try and see if we do have homes for elderly people. And I was traumatized. Mm. I was traumatized because... There was one that I went to, has everything in place, is run by Catholic sisters, and it is really an establishment of the Catholic Church. Then there was another that has both children that are orphaned and has elderly persons, both women and men, that is completely run down, not funded, it's not a government-supported institution, it is people trying to get funds from non-profit establishments, mm -hmm. but then it is a situation that is not so good to see, mm -hmm. you know, because it doesn't engage people. It doesn't have the family members of the elderly people that have come in involved. There is no interaction for them with the outside world. In fact, when I asked them, they did say that some of the elderly people there had been abandoned somewhere in the streets or some found by the police station or by some hospital, and that's how they ended up mm. there. So not good, not well-funded, no connection with where they came from in terms of human relations, and it's very isolating, I think. I loved your point. I think Cuba was a real eye-opener because somebody clearly at some point had thought about social reproduction. Yeah. It had been thought about. I think there'd been lots of difficulties implementing it in various different ways because we could see embargoes have an effect. Embargoes have a huge effect. You could see that the thought had gone into it at a national level. The 
doctors that we met were very keen. They visited people to make sure they were all right in their local areas, which is stunning mm. <laughs> when you think that in Britain you're allowed 10 minutes and you've got to get out and trying to get an appointment is almost impossible. So there had been a commitment to really provide caring. And then I thought the most stunning thing was all the local solidarities, the women's communities that we went into, the hairdressing group that had set themselves up and were providing lots of support. So you saw examples of where those solidarities still existed. For me, fundamentally, there was a belief that these things were important, a real belief. And so if you think in Britain, 18 years minimum of austerity, government policies on austerity have attacked what are called the unproductive. So they haven't just attacked, they've attacked the welfare system. The welfare system exists for childcare mainly, to support women doing childcare, and for the elderly and for the disabled. The cuts have attacked childcare, elderly and disabled. So many cuts. And when you look at the pattern of them, that's the unproductive, apart from children who will be future labour. So we live in a country where those cuts have been extensive and are continuing. It's a disregard for those who are not productive, where in Cuba it was radically different, radically, radically different. So I thought we could learn a lot from keeping those solidarities in place and thinking about how we support them more. But if you've got a government determined to kill the unproductive, 40 deaths per day in Britain from unmet care needs. So that is what I would call, it's called austericide, killing the poor, basically. So, you know, we've got that, it felt, and we weren't really there long enough to make sociological comments on the system, but it did feel very different. It felt as if people were more connected to each other, much less brutal, much less brutal. Of course, it resonates. It's a gift for me to hear your experience and how you connect with mm -hmm. them. And actually, it's also a gift because it's mm -hmm. something that we can see, I mm -hmm. can see from mm -hmm. a different perspective. Mm -hmm. It's something I can share with my people in Cuba from a different perspective. But I don't want people to feel like Cuba is paradise. Because it's not. <laughs> And I think, I think that part of the value of this seminar, of all the changes and so, it's how we can learn from each other. Yeah, yeah. And actually, yeah. I think that part of that caring and part of that interconnectedness mm -hmm. is how we can learn from each other and how we can support each other, not just to say da-da-da, no, to mm -hmm. encourage which are our strengths and to see how we are going to work on our abilities to say something. I think that something very important, it's the framework of the government. Uh -huh. For sure, there is a settlement in Cuba in which we care. I think that was the goal of the revolution. I think that was the dream of Fidel mm -hmm. for a long time. Mm -hmm. And generations, at least till mine in our 40s, mm -hmm. I think that we really believe in that dream. Mm -hmm. And it was very important mm -hmm. since we were in daycare, since we have been in our school to take care for each mm -hmm. other. Mm -hmm. And there are very different examples, very particular policies. Internationalism was one. Mm -hmm. Very complicated because there are a lot of people who says you are exporting wars. 
or a lot of people that it's saying you are exporting mm -hmm. people to be killed in some other wars. But the basic was we need to help mm -hmm. those who need it. When we are thinking about doctors that are going all around, they are going to help. Yeah. Of course, that it's again a lot of things on discussion because it's about doctors that are leaving Cuba and then we have less doctors in yeah. Cuba. And at the same time, yes, they have been paid. It's part of an advantage they can have regarding their salaries in Cuba. But in the very basics, when you go to them, when you ask them what they did, when you go and see people they have been working with, it's also about, I do care. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I remember once I was in a line in the airport and I didn't know that the carry-on, you should also wait. wait in. So I had a lot of books and I said, oh, I'm going to kill. I was in the line that was in Paris And the one who was in charge was someone from Africa. And I had my passport. And when I passed and he saw my passport, he said, are you Cuban? And I said, yes. And he said, doctors. <laughs> he didn't wait my carry-on. I just went straight there. And for me, it was about what do we mean in the world? When we are thinking, for example, in 2000, when we realized that there were a huge population of young people who were not studying, not working, they were anywhere. Fidel said, we have to provide opportunities to those who are in disadvantage to be in. And it was super complex because he said, we have to open the university to those who are majority in the families of working. They are majorities in families where they are black, where they are mulattoes, where they have a population in prison, and that's why they don't have enough possibilities to enter the university, because when they are going to pass the exams, they fail, because there are tools that they don't have with them mm -hmm. in order that they can pass the exam. So it was a massive movement that was called universalization at that time, and then he decided that he was going to open small university in every municipality in mm -hmm. Cuba. That was complex because professors at the university, students at the university felt like that was unfair because they say, how is it possible that I have to pass exams and they are not <laughs> going to pass it? Mm -hmm. Professor says, mm -hmm. how is it possible that so low quality students are going to be at the university? And during all those discussions, Fidel was trying to say, I know what you're saying, I can connect with what you're saying, but the issue here is about providing opportunities. And they should have the opportunity, they should have the same opportunity because one of the big mistakes of the process of the revolution was that the dream, the utopia, in a way blind reality. Mm -hmm. Because yes, it wasn't a structure, you have that structure, that is important, but you can't erase subjectivities. Mm -hmm. You can't erase the culture. So you have also to be very aware of the subjective processes that are going on within the structures that you were dreaming, but it's not just about that. Mm -hmm. yeah. And that happened with color of the skin, that happened with some other kind of inequalities. I wanted also to connect with that because in a way it's about subjectivities, <laughs> but it's about money. You can dream, 
but you need the money. Okay, okay. great. Okay, okay, great. <laughs> okay. Okay. Fascinating. I know that we all want to get to the question of responsibility and who should take responsibility, who does take responsibility for care, and what are the ingrained assumptions we have about care and caregiving that are holding us back. So I think I want to go there if you're ready for that. And then maybe we could segue, maybe I don't need to pose another question, we could just segue into what are the steps out of here? Mm. What can our audience and what can we start doing that's going to make any difference at all in changing Mm. these assumptions and getting the right people, well, I guess that's everyone, to take responsibility? When you're explaining that, you can sense a different social space where people do still care for each other. We experience that. And I think when you come from somewhere that's been really brutalized, I grew up with much more care in a community. And then it becomes so much more brutal, competitive and individualistic. I feel as if we do need to go back to that. Because if you think the people who were rewarded the most are the uncaring, the people who get paid the most are the uncaring. They don't do the care. They get somebody else to do the care for them. So the carefree and the careless are almost rewarded for being so. Mm. We need to change that. If we're living in this brutal monetized system where it's only the productive that get reward, and we are in that system. I think you're in a different one. I still do think you're in a much, much more caring space. I'd say we're in a brutal space because we have been so effectively privatized, monetized, commodified, financialized, whichever term you want to use, we are in it. And I think we have to really reorganize our priorities again. We've got to really think, what do we want? Because it's inhuman. It's inhuman to kill people. It's inhuman to punish the disabled. It's inhuman not to want to look after other people. And for me, it's fundamentally inhuman to bring up children who do not want to care for other people because they're so interested in themselves. So we have to really, really think, what sort of world do we want to live in? And in our own little nationalist ways, we've just gone through here in Britain, in the UK, we've just seen the intensification of hate. And we have to do something to build solidarity again, to build care into how we want to relate to people. For me, that's a fundamental change of position. But I know it's really hard. How are we going to get there? Because if you think we had the welfare state, it was an attempt to look after the vulnerable, not kill the vulnerable. I think we've moved so far and we've moved in stealth without people noticing. Mm -hmm. And they've been involved in that. So, you know, my immediate reaction wasn't, well, I didn't have lots of aunts and uncles and families to look after, but there's nobody I could call on to share the pain, really. It's just pay for the dissipation of pain. So we need to think about how we do that differently. And that's quite a long process. And part of change always, I think, is changing the terminology, changing the way we talk about it. I mean, the problem with care is that I love it as a frame, (laughs) but it sounds so soft. I know. uh, People just kind of go blank when I say it. (laughs) Try saying social reproduction. (laughs) But I was thinking when you said solidarity, that's a word that has certain connotations that make it kind of political and left. But it's a wonderful word and it's a wonderful concept and it connects to care. They're very similar. We should reclaim it. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And you do see really good examples of it where people do look after each other. 
Yeah, and I think that's building up in lots of different ways, but it's hard to resist brutalization. Mm-hmm. Do you want to talk about immigration a little bit? I know that you're an expert. Well, I was going to show a map. <laughs> I just want to quickly add, though, to the assumptions around care and somehow weaving the migration issue. There are assumptions that women should be the ones providing mm. caring duties. And this, in some ways, is, of course, linked to the gender inequality conversation. The other assumption that is also fueled by the way care is organized is that women who provide care or caregivers do not have care needs or we tend to forget Mm -hmm. about them. And that for me is important because while I know there's been a lot of research that has been done about that, especially by ILO, there is also, when you bring it down to household level, domestic workers or people who are paid to take on the caring role from some of us is that they also have to transfer their caring roles to other people, mostly usually women or daughters in their families to be able to do that. And so there are assumptions around what it means when you bring a carer into your space, whether people understand that this is actually work and whether they interact with care workers as this is work, so the person is doing their work, and not start saying so-and-so is like one of the families. And then when we've spoken to care workers and some of the domestic workers, like the ones I met in London, they say, but, you know, it's confusing because we also know you cannot treat a family member the way you choose to treat a domestic worker. They work in very bad working conditions and the living conditions for the ones that migrate are also questionable. I wanted to share about this because I draw this from my dissertation at London School of Economics. And I was concerned about the limited existing research or the continued research around where African women are going to provide domestic work or care when we look at the health. But at some point, then I stopped looking at the migration of health workers and focused on domestic workers. When you look at this map, and this is not conclusive, you will see where some of the African women are going. You can see perhaps from the different colors that you have that stream of African women from different countries that go to the USA, And you do have others, especially from the West African region, going into Brazil. But part of that is that then there is also a going back into Europe that also happened. Then there is a large majority from the East African region going to the Gulf region and going to some of the areas around Middle East. But then you can see there is a connecting dot from the Gulf region that goes all the way to the UK. And the thing is for us to understand what the employment or work or migration of domestic workers means in order for them to be able to get to one country and opt out and move to another in Europe is as a result of running away, is not Mm. something that they voluntarily went like, okay, so now I'm just going to leave Saudi and I will go to the UK. Mm. It was because 
And when we think about the visas and the immigration laws and policies is because when you scrutinize the UK visas, and it's not just the UK only, even the US, this has been found to be true of the US as well, is that the rich people from certain countries find it easy to come and spend their holidays in the UK or to invest or to do whatever business they have. And there is a visa that allows them to travel accompanied by their domestic workers. And their domestic workers are then bound by that visa. So they cannot leave because the visa indicates that the person has been sponsored. So that's one way that has created problems. And there's been a lot of campaigning and there's been some wins in the UK, for example, based on the activists that have done a lot of work to question, to challenge, and all manner of things. But what the problem is, when you look at the African women that have gone to the Gulf region, and the laws there require that they are bound for two years based on the arrangement with their employers, and they cannot leave. So when these employers have traveled with them, say, to London for summer holidays or for whatever business, then these women have been able to escape or to run away. And luckily, because then there are activists doing this work, then that's how Mm. their stories have come out and there's been some level of being able to intervene. And so you have African women from all these parts going to all manner of places. But the last thing I'm going to say about this is the how it points to global inequalities and some of the things that Bev had started talking about is that you have women migrating because they do not have the means or they don't have jobs. So it is connected to the situations of inequalities in their countries. And so they migrate to richer countries to be able to provide domestic work and to be able to send back money to their countries to take care of their children, their families. And in the meantime, they have transferred their caring responsibilities to someone else in the family, or they've hired someone usually cheaper that is coming from a rural setting to be able to take on this job. So it's not just about showing that African women are moving, but it's also some of the things that Debel started talking about, how it is also racialized. This work is racialized when African women move. And it's not just African women, even the Filipino, women from Sri Lanka, women from Nepal, from India. When they have moved, mainly Global South women move into work in richer countries. The work has also been associated with certain races, being black, being a woman of color, that you can do it. And if we went deeper into this conversation, we could see how it is also linked to the history of slavery and how then it has been defined and how it has come to be understood to be work that is lowly valued, lowly paid. Yeah. Yeah. Let's open the conversation up a little bit here. We want to welcome virtually, if we have the technology all set up, Kripa, who is another senior Atlantic fellow. She's joining us from her home in Nepal. She has recently completed her degree in equalities and social science from the London School of Economics. She has over eight years of experience working with feminist human rights organizations in South Asia. And she is joining us from Nepal now and has been listening. Welcome, Kripa. 
I want to talk about domestic care workers of Nepal and what they've been facing and the experiences and how they're looked at is is completely same as what Saida shared. It's basically what all assumptions are there and how these workers are basically looked at, how their bodies are relegated and is just limited to a free labor in home and cheap labor in the Gulf countries. So talking about Nepal, I would say introduction of liberalization in Nepal it led to encouragement of men and women both to migrate to Gulf countries. And in 2011, UN Women, they quoted saying that there are almost 244,000 Nepali women going to Gulf countries, driven by the promise of economic incentives. But due to few violent cases against them, the government of Nepal, they have actually introduced several bans now and then. They have introduced this Restriction on women's mobility on the basis of their age, their marital status, pregnancy, their maternal status, and even the category of work. And especially this is applicable for women who are low-wage workers. And the ban is still there. So it is more important for us to advocate against this particular ban that is there. So by the looks of it, care work is commodified for people who can pay and privatized for people who cannot pay. And due to this protectionist restriction, what it has done is it has opened up a market for clandestine and debt finance migration and also has increased these women's vulnerability as it is increased violence and it has led to more exploitation of these uh, women particularly. A different side to what the organizations are advocating for as well, like some anti-trafficking organizations coming in talking about how these women are victims and should be infantilized by inherently portraying them as the vulnerable and they need protection. So I think like there's also a need to change that perspective, even while we are advocating. And there's a sense of how they are being treated as disposable commodity. So I would say that these women workers, like they have contributed a lot, not just in Nepal, but also in the destination country. Almost 30% of the GDP in Nepal is contributed by remittance. And almost 70% of women are contributing in the sector. But still, they are not being treated as an independent economic actor who can move freely and work safely with dignity. So the focus, I feel, should be on strengthening sustainable livelihoods in community of origin and also treat their safe and fair migration as a short-term solution only. There are many cases where we interacted with the domestic care workers' family and many of the women shared the failure of men, the family, to take up the childcare responsibilities seriously. The husband, he doesn't want to take the childcare responsibilities. So I feel there's a need to also talk about how this can be, how the burden of unpaid care work can be distributed, reduced and recognized. That is what the feminist movement is also talking about. And particularly when we talk about the problematic situation of how women are being looked at is most of these women might not have the luxury of a choice to take a regular migration route. And even if they are people who are informed about labor migration, they might still be a part of those system of extreme exploitation. So how do we counter that is also a question that we might have to ask. And so the situation, the burden of safety is put on the individual woman and not on the state of origin or state of destination. So I feel like that is what we also need to think of when we are talking about primary responsibility for safe migration.
decent work of these domestic care workers. And like Saida said, in terms of the sponsorship system, even in the Gulf countries, the Kapala system, there used to be an abolition and reform of this system completely where women are actually enslaved. And this is a modern day slavery. But at the same time, there are women who are also making money, they're sending back home and they're sustaining their family. A uh, few violent cases are taken up as a justification to curb women's mobility. We need to be also careful of not reinforcing patriarchal norms. And I would end my thoughts by saying that there's also the situation where women are increasingly feeling a push to migrate due to absence or underfunding of basic public services. So state must think about the long-term solution when they're looking at provision of care. The portability of social security benefits and pensions is what I think we should also focus on and link care with social protection. I also want to ask the panelists to share your thoughts on how can we look at intersectionalities even with the care aspect. I will talking about the care right now and also about the planet. So how can we make those linkages where we're all related in terms of care? What do you think? (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Kripa. I mean, the forces, and we've had a bit of conversation around this, the same forces that are at play in creating the crisis around labor and around global finance, as you've explained it, Bev, are the same forces that are actually at play when it comes to the crisis of climate, in fact, Mm -hmm. When you think about it from a social reproduction point of view, you then bring all the three together as this huge crisis is now Mm -hmm. in the world. But specifically for us in the global south, for those of us who are located in the sub-Saharan African region, is that we can see the link between the climate crisis and the change that's going on and the increase in the unpaid labor that women have to take up. We can see how that is connected to how that labor is when it comes to the agricultural communities and the amount of either time that now women have to spend, especially in farming communities, that they have to spend sorting out the food or what the situation is going to be. But it might seem so simplistic when I put it that way, but part of what is happening is that there is an increase in the caring roles that women have to take up because of the changes that are occurring and the crisis around whether or not they're going to spend more time now looking for water, looking for food, or taking care of whatever farming activities they're involved in. But I think key for all of us to remember is that it is the same forces. It is the lack of care for the planet that is also driving this process. And the two, at some point, come together. And if we are thinking about alternatives, then we ought to be thinking about how does care of humans and care of the planet look like? What does that society look like where we actually care about each other and making sure there's public services, making sure there's funding, making sure it is possible for people to access the care they need. But at the same time, the production and the consumption of it is not such that it's not caring to what the planet can support or not support. I want to connect with this. Yeah. Because I think that when you are showing that metaphor or that connection between the planet and the caring in a, an interpersonal level, yeah. you are bringing back the issue of caring it about every level yes. of analysis of society. 
And something that I feel very strongly when we have to share our own experiences from all over, it's like the first thing is that you have to feel the vulnerability mm-hmm. of the need of yeah. care. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. And uh, I think that as human beings, and it's not something that I have as a romantic issue, it's something that I have believed through my experiences in different spaces, working in group dynamics, is that we all have a lot of vulnerabilities. And there is also a way in which our institutions are developing, in which looks like there are some who have no vulnerability and there are some others who are those who should carry it. And we are also reproducing that culture. And we are also reproducing the culture in which there is a perpetuous victim and there is another one who is the victimary. I think that it's important that we can all feel our own vulnerabilities because it's a process of reproduction also of who it's nurturing from who. And when you were talking, for example, about the migration protests that also take place in Cuba, it's also about the impact of that. Because the good thing in which some people can see the very clear impact, it's money and how you can then send remittances to our families. But there is an important impact, an important pain coming from those families in the case that sometimes you can get your children with you and what is happening with those children, what is happening with the elderly in those families that are taking care of your children and so on. So I think that it's also about our processes of socialization. And I think something important for us without a slogan is to work with children and to work in the education of our young generations. Because if we have to think about how our generations know just in US, not just in America, that we are closer. But when I see that in Oslo are celebrating Halloween, or when I see that the big heroes are everywhere, it's like, what do we have in mind? And to be a hero, to be Superman, to be Batman, to be all of them, they are the super persons. They don't need each other. They are, they are fixing. No, it looks like funny, but it is not. Because what it is the mind is that I don't need other people because I have everything with me. And it's a way in which I feel that development societies has developed also a feeling of I don't need the other because I am their hero. Because I have the technology, because I have the money, I have everything. But in the very basic, you are also very vulnerable because you are losing your capacity to be a human being. And that looks like, I don't want to be a human being. I want to have a trip to Dubai or to whatever. But the issue is how you are losing the possibility to feel. And I think that talking about responsibility in your previous question, it's about responsibility, it's everywhere. Because responsibility is in the governments that has to be aware and has to be accountable for what they are providing to their citizens. But accountability is also in our groups because at least me, I can't change all the policies in my country, but I can change my small space Mm -hmm. at the university, which is the institution I work in. But I can change also the way in which I raise my child and how I want to be him being a man and a human being and so on. So I think that responsibility and accountability comes together and it's coming from every society. And I think that it's also very 
risky because when we have to take responsibility and accountability, it also means that you are going to be in conflict mm -hmm. and you have to fight a lot mm -hmm. and that it's also painful and that it takes a lot of energy. So it's also about if we ask ourselves, what do we want? And in a way, because it takes so much energy and so much time, it's also that I think that when it's not just one voice, but it's a lot of voices, we can support each other. And it's easier to do something different, you know? We're going to wrap it up. I know. We've barely, we've barely <laughs> begun. This has been such a rich conversation. I'm honored to be with you. And I really personally look forward to continuing this conversation, which I know we all want to do. And I guess to the audience, join us. We very much believe it's so important to make this issue visible, yeah. to name it, to define our own terms about it, and to work together. Being interdependent does not mean being weak. It doesn't mean anything soft. It's a very powerful thing. And if we want to make a better world, it's absolutely essential. So thank you so much to the Atlantic Institute for partnering with the Cuba platform today. And if you want to stay in this conversation, please type to us at platform at cubaplatform.org. Wow. Thank you very much. <laughs>